cash flow is something that we had to learn the hard way in the recession in 2008. And so what we've tried to do is build our own tools to help measure it, manage it, forecast it, and then operate our business within it. And traditional small business accounting software doesn't do a very good job at that. And so we've just kind of built our own tools along the way and never stopped using it. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I'm really excited today to have a special guest. Today, I'd like to welcome Sean Askinosi from Askinosi Chocolate. He is the founder and CEO. So welcome to the podcast, Sean. I'm really excited to chat with you today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Why don't you give us a little bit of background? I mean, I know you've been been in this business for a little while and you've got some great experiences and I and some incredible things to talk about as far as the brand story goes. So why don't you just share a little bit of how you got here? The short version is that I was a criminal defense lawyer for almost 20 years, and I specialized in really serious felony cases, and I loved it. And I I really thought from a young age that I'd do that for the rest of my life. And as it turned out, and I'm sure many of your listeners can relate to this, I just kind of figured out body, mind, and soul was telling me I needed to find something else to do. So I didn't know how to do anything else but the courtroom. And I came up with some hobbies and I took those hobbies into a business and started making bean-to-bar chocolate really as one of the first to do that in the United States. There were two or three of us that were starting in in the U.S. at the same time. That was about 16 years ago. And yeah. That's that's quite a shift from one thing to something wildly different. What made you think the bean to bar chocolate was going to be your path versus all the other things that could have been available to you? I had a sense early on in my search and my search took about five years. So I was still practicing law at the time and desperately searching. And because my nature is one of research, asking questions, uncovering stones, turning over stones, talking to people. I did that as a lawyer. That's how I made my living. So I just pursued finding the next thing with the same level of intensity. And I had a sense that it would be something related to the food industry. Mm -hmm. And so at that time, really bean to bar chocolate was not a thing at all. Um, Scharfenberger in August of 2005 sold to Hershey. So people really associated that way back, you know, with Scharfenberger. And of course I talked to them when I started my company, but I didn't know anything. I didn't know where chocolate came from. I I thought it was just kind of like the Lucy show, you know, where it just ended up on a molding (laughs) line and it was poured into a mold. And I had no clue. And I was making chocolate desserts. I had no idea where it came from. One day I'm driving to the relative of a distant funeral, just or a distant relative going to her funeral. And uh, I thought, you know, maybe I just try making it from scratch. Maybe that would be a business. After looking at so many food businesses, starting my own or buying a franchise. And I thought, well, I'll just, maybe I'll just make it from scratch. Within three months of that little light bulb, I was in the Amazon and I was understanding how, how farmers can really influence the flavor of chocolate by how they harvest 
the cocoa beans. And then that really changed me, you know, being in the middle of primary forest and rainforest and not have, I've, you know, I've traveled all over the world since a young age, but I've never experienced primary forest. It was uh, transformative for me. And then I came back and started to think about how I could wind down my law practice, which, you know, that's not an easy endeavor. You have to it take, it took me a year to wind that down with a partner to help take over some of those cases and buy a building and buy and buy the equipment. There was nowhere to learn. You couldn't, Yeah, we could Google in the next five seconds and figure out where to make bean to bar chocolate in the United States and how to learn. And there was nothing then the Europeans weren't talking. They were very secretive about that process. So I convinced a company in Ecuador to let me hang out in their factory multiple times. And, and so I did that and you couldn't buy equipment. So I bought equipment from South America, Germany, Italy, you know, just cobbled together what I could and made a lot of mistakes, a lot of, lot, a lot of mistakes that cost money. But here we are. <laughs> Amazing. What what made you think that you were going to be able to turn it into a profitable business? Like it sounds like you had a, a ton of learning to do at the beginning. Did you either see a path really clearly to that or did you see something else that made you feel really passionately? Like, did you want to do it because you were trying to solve for a need that you saw in the marketplace? Like, what was it that made you no, choose that? I didn't. Well, of course, when I started thinking about this, then I started buying chocolate from really, really, it was just buying chocolate from Europe and tasting chocolate and, and you could find it online and you could also find it in some whole foods, but mm -hmm. it was all, it was all from Europe in 2005, six, pretty much. And so I didn't really, it wasn't so much a need in the marketplace. It was a passion to do this kind of work. I knew I wanted to work directly with farmers. I knew okay. that from before I started the thing, there was a lot we can, and we can talk about that, but that, that passion really originated with my own, you know, here I am in Southwest Missouri. My grandparents were small farmers and, and they really inspire me to this day. I knew I wanted to meet farmers as often as I could. I wanted to learn from them and I wanted to buy cocoa beans directly from them without a broker, without a distributor. I've done that in every bean buy I've ever made wow. in the last 16 years. And so I just knew that I wanted to do this. And I also knew I had a sense that as I was looking at other businesses, for example, I thought about cupcakes. You know, this was all during the sex in the city craze with Magnolia Bakery in New York. I went to New York, not for Broadway. I went just to go to Magnolia Bakery and taste the cupcakes. Wow. And I found them, they were kind of mean. You know, I was really disappointed. I felt the people bad. at the were, store. Yeah. They were kind of mean. And I thought, oh, gee, this isn't a fun deal, but I did turn away from cupcakes. I was going to, I thought I might bake cupcakes and here we'd be talking about cupcakes, but, but I knew that with chocolate and especially making it from scratch, I knew that there would be sort of endless learning, that there's never really a mastery of it or the business related to it. I mean, for, for example, I mean, here we are in Missouri. And if you talk to me in July or August, I'd be telling you, I'd be lamenting the humidity and how hard it is to make chocolate during the, those times and how, how different it is to try to keep it stable without emulsifiers because we don't use any emulsifiers. And you know, it's just constantly changing. Or we're buying a new roaster. I bought a new roaster last week. I have not had a new roaster since the first one I bought 16 years ago. Just a piece of junk from Columbia that we've used and cobbled together and repaired all these years. And that's going to be a whole new learning process for us because it has bells and whistles on it that you you don't have a choice. You're, every roaster you buy now has bells and whistles. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to give us just a, a really cool challenge, you know, in the coming year to make sure that we make even better tasting chocolate. And so I just knew that there would be endless learning. And that was something that really attracted me with chocolate. 
so talk about the process. So you start the company, now you're making chocolate. That's your business. How do you go from that to where you are now? How did you go about the production and the distribution and all the things that you've been doing since 2007? Is that what you said? Mm -hmm. Yep. Started 2006, first bar rolled off in 2007. Well, I feel like that my skills as a lawyer have really helped me over the years. And I I alluded to it a moment ago, and that is asking a lot of questions. Ah, And I think journalists have this characteristic. And I kind of fancied myself as an investigator. I mean, I hired investigators, but I was really that myself. And so I think asking a lot of questions and when you layer in that I had zero business classes at the University of Missouri where I went to school, I am not very mechanically inclined. You can ask my wife. And so I had to ask a lot of questions and I had to just try to fill in all the gaps, which were many of what I didn't know. And so that's really, you know, that's how I got the first sort of wave of equipment that we've used in the factory. And then we've replaced much of it over the years just by asking questions and then by seeking out people in the industry that might be willing to help that are maybe we're at a much larger scale than us in the beginning and figuring out how to temper chocolate, which is not easy, as I, as I said, especially without emulsifiers and asking questions about that. And so when it came to buying the beans, which is really the most important thing, you can't make chocolate without cocoa beans. I knew I was going to go straight to the source from the beginning. So that's what I've done. So before we started recording, I mentioned that I'm I'm going to be in Ecuador in a couple of weeks, and that'll be my 47th origin trip since I started the company. And it's part of what we call direct trade, going there, meeting with the farmers, seeing if everything is going well, and if they need our help, and or if we can learn from them what they're doing in the way of organic farming practices, we can learn from them with that, post-harvest practices, and profit sharing. That's another important reason to go. And we open our books to the farmers our financials, wow. our financials are open to them in their language. So when I go to Ecuador, my financial statement will be in Spanish. And that's always been that way. And I've dealt with the same farmer for 16 years. And he knows that this is the way it is. And he can see our financials and understand how we calculate the profit share. But we do that in Ecuador, the Philippines. I was there in January, Tanzania. I was there last May. I'll be there in July again, but with this time with 14 local high school students as part of our chocolate university program we've been doing for 13 years, and then another origin in the Amazon. And so getting the beans is important. You can't make chocolate without it. So that's what we do is go straight to the source. And then as far as getting the chocolate out there, we're a very small company. I mean, we're 20 people. And my daughter is our chief marketing officer and was my co-author in my book. And and we've worked, she's, she started working for me when she was probably 15 and mm-hmm. she's a part owner in the company now. And, but we don't have a distributor either. So all of it is direct to store. We're at probably between five and 600 stores in the United States and a lot of whole food stores and just other stores that range in size from small specialty food or coffee shops to larger places like Whole Foods, Central Market, those kind of places. And then we have other distribution channels like restaurants, coffee shops, ice cream, then a lot online. We sell a lot online in our e-com. We're really proud of what we've done with our e-com in the last five years. What's your percentage of e-com versus retail? I would say, well, we have a storefront retail as well. And then we have what we call our B2B channel, which includes 
restaurant and stores. But I would say that the online makes up roughly 40% of our business right now, shipping directly to consumers. Yep. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And then sell a lot in our little storefront in our factory in Springfield, Missouri, but it's all direct to store which has been consistent with our model, you know. I was going to say, a, are you doing that on purpose? Are you purposely avoiding the traditional distribution model? In the beginning, you know, in the very beginning, it was me just calling stores and it all really started in San Francisco. Those were the folks who were most willing to experiment with, oh, an $8 chocolate bar? Okay, sure, we'll do mm-hmm. that. So San Francisco really was the place. And so it just started with that. And it just made sense for us to just keep going with that. And that, that seemed like the path of least resistance for us to just Mm -hmm. do it that way. And so we've never really explored the distributor model until the last 12 months we've been toying with it and, you know, talking with a variety of people and asking ourselves internally, do we want to tiptoe into this? And it's an ongoing process for us right now, a decision-making process about how we want to approach that and if we want to approach it. Do you think you need to do that if you want to scale? And do you want to scale quickly? Or what's the what's your sort of five-year, I wish the brand was here in five years? The idea of scale is something that I personally have resisted for the last 16 years. I write about it in my book. I have a chapter called Reverse Scale. and um, <laughs> But the scale is relative. So the scale for one guest that you might have on your show would be very, very different from what I might think of as scale. Mm -hmm. The question I think is, do we want to grow a little bit faster than we currently are? And -hmm. I think the answer is yes. And so to what end are we willing to go in order to achieve that? And that is a work in progress. And I will say, not everybody in the company agrees with me, <laughs> and that's okay. Also, something I write about in my book, which I think is very important for companies, especially strong founders that pride themselves on their intensity and motivation and passion like me, to be willing to hear other voices in the company that may have a different view and not just tamp those down. And so right. that's something that we, we've really, I think, become good at. So yeah, we I think we probably will grow a little bit in the next five years in a way that might look different than the last five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and to your earlier question, will we need a distributor or multiple distributors in order to achieve that? Maybe, depending on you know who we're talking to. And in some cases, and we've had this situation ha- happen before, which is we have a great relationship with Store X. And they say, we would love to deal directly with you, but we're going to need you to use our distributor. Yeah. Okay, fine. We did that. We did that with Central Market for a while, mm-hmm. years ago. And that's okay. And we may need to do that. And 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 we're okay with that. And I understand the margin sacrifice. And, and without specifically speaking of specific margin percentages, we're prepared for that. I'm okay with that. I know what effect that will have on the bottom line. And I think it'll be just fine. Awesome. You think about scaling the way that we're talking about it. Would that force you? Do you? Would that force you to have to also raise capital, or have you already raised capital? No, it's all me. Not that I'm a money bags or anything like that. But we're very conservative about this. So, you know, I had some savings built up as a lawyer, and that's basically what we've done is just use initially, you know, uh, yeah. that savings, and that's how it started. And we haven't put any other money in it since then. Basically, everything has operated out of cash flow. 
since mm-hmm. the beginning. Wow. And you didn't ask me this directly, but I do believe that the management of cash flow is one of the most important things in any business. And I told you I didn't take any business classes. So I've had to learn this from scratch. And I have people, I have a chief operating officer, John Taylor, who actually teaches finance and accounting, and he's been with me for a long time. And so he really, really has helped me and Lauren understand this process over the years. And now it's something, even before the economy was wonky, cash flow is something that we had to learn the hard way in the recession in 2008. And so what we've tried to do is build our own tools to help measure it, manage it, forecast it, and then operate our business within it. And traditional small business accounting software doesn't do a very good job at that. And so we've just kind of built our own tools along the way and never stopped using them. So we really, we didn't stop in 2011 or 12. We've just done it the whole way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I am sure that we've missed opportunities well, I know we've missed opportunities because we didn't go take on a bunch of debt mm-hmm. or raise capital from equity. And we just haven't done it. We haven't had to do it. And now that's not to say that we haven't taken on some debt. We took on some real estate debt because I own the the building that the factory is in and and the warehouse. And when we've, we just have purchased some new equipment last week and we took on a little slice of debt for that, but we're very conservative that way. And I, I would credit my wife with that. I mean, she's, she is very, very conservative when it comes to debt and has kind of insisted that we operate that way. And I think, you know, I thank her for that because I'm kind of the other way. If it was just left up to me, I probably would have borrowed a lot more money by now. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've been married 35 years though. So I'm glad that she's kind of insisted on that conservative approach. But to answer your your question, which, which was, would we require any additional capital in order to scale? And I think, yes, yes, we would. Again, depending on what we're looking at, as it relates to that scale. And so we're actually exploring that right now. And we've been exploring it in the last, oh, I would say six months. Thankfully, I have a 30-year long relationship with a small bank that I've been at for a long time. They're they're very small. They're a community bank. They like me. And I could borrow the money that I needed to scale, or I could take on an investor, an individual or something like that. So we're exploring that. We're just exploring what the best way is for that. And also you're in such a great position to be exploring it right now, because right now, I think you must be feeling pretty good about being having played it conservatively because now raising capital is so, so hard, so much harder than it was four years ago, or even right at the end of the pandemic, it started to loosen up again until the economy started to feel Mm -hmm. really scary to people. And so I'm sure Mm -hmm. you're feeling really good about your shot at even raising capital, which a lot of people just can't do it at the moment. Yes. And thankfully, you know, my community, I've been in this community in Springfield, Missouri for a very long time. And so in the event that we raise money through equity, it would probably be with someone that I've had a longstanding relationship with someone that's local and or debt. I know those people, I've known them for a long time. So I feel good about that, but I'm also spinning plates on the other side of the equation, which is while we want to grow, and if we do want to grow, like I'm talking about, then yes, we may need some additional capital, but I also want to make sure that I time it correctly. So as you said, we are all facing headwinds now 
everyone. And so it's something that we look at, or, and I'm looking at this pretty much every day. And, you know, I feel good about it because I feel good about it. Not so much from the standpoint that it would be easy to raise capital, but I feel good about it because we are profitable. And Mm -hmm. part of the reason we're profitable is because we're conservative and we don't have a lot of debt. We don't have huge debt service. So we're not sitting around, you know, wringing our hands, thinking about, oh my gosh, we're going to need to talk to the bank. Yeah. And so I'm thankful for that. There are days I'm sure in the last couple of years where I thought to myself, shoot, you know, I wish we were a little bigger and growing a little faster, but now I'm thankful that it kind of has turned out the way that it has for us. Yeah. Because we're we're able to navigate through it in a way that we might not have been able to do otherwise. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm really happy for you and where you are because I do think this is going to be a challenging little bit of time. I hope it's a little bit of time for people, not a long, I do long too. bit I do of time. Too. We all do. Um, we all but do. I know, yeah, everyone's really stressed by it. Do you want to talk a little bit about your university? Because I think that's really interesting. And I and I think it's amazing that you're doing it. And I feel like it's one of the things that makes brands incredibly appealing right now for consumers, for investors, just something that definitely younger generations are are actually really tapped into, but you've been doing it for a long time. So can you talk a little bit about that? The Chalkley University project started the day we opened the doors and yeah. our factory was located back then. I mean, it's in the same place, but it was where most of the social services were in my community. A lot of homeless people. I wanted to be there. I wanted to be on that street. Now it's a lot different. You know, it's been gentrified in many ways and and that's another story. But there was a homeless shelter down the block from our factory that had 85 kids a night in that shelter with their parents. And so what I wanted to do was engage the kids of the neighborhood, not just the kids at the shelter, but the kids of the neighborhood in our business. So we started Chocolate University. And we started in the elementary school all those years ago, 16 years ago. And we're still involved with that elementary school to this day. Then we started a middle school program, a middle school summer school program. And then in 2009, a high school immersion program. I mentioned earlier, we're taking kids to Tanzania that well. It's a very competitive program and students from Southwest Missouri who are juniors and seniors can apply to be part of this. And we have a whole process of of application and interview. And the students that are selected are very, they're, they're outstanding students and have really excelled academically and otherwise. And so we bring them together and we fund the whole thing ourselves. Oh, students wow. don't, the students pay a, a $500 fee to be part of this. And if they can't afford that, we even pay for that. But this immersion program, as I said, the first trip was 2010, but they learn about our business model through the spring semester. They learn a little bit of Tanzania language, culture, history. They spend a week on a nearby university campus in the summer, and then they go home and pack and we take them to Tanzania. And we fund all of that ourselves. And there's a couple of us that raise money because it's about $5,000 a student to do that. Yeah, I can and the, the the thing is, the, the inspiration of Chocolate University is to teach young people that small business can be a force for good in the world. and that there's a world beyond their own. There's a mm-hmm. world beyond Springfield, Missouri. I'm still in touch with students from 2010. In fact, we just had a board meeting. Now, when I started, it was just a project. It's a part of Asking Us Chocolate. About six years ago, when we started construction of a preschool in Tanzania, we had to we had to really step it up a notch and not just use our local community foundation. Every All of your listeners have a community foundation in their community, and it's, 
it's sort of a poor person's version of a nonprofit that they can use to have people who share their passion and community development to come alongside them and help with projects. But we started our own chair, our own public charity six years ago, and it's a 501c3 with a board of directors. And we just had a board meeting, but what's really cool is one of our new board members was a student traveler with us in 2010. Oh my God! Yes, he's he he's a corporate tax lawyer in Las Vegas now. No, how fantastic! Yeah, and I mean, it's it was such a full circle moment for me this past week in that board meeting. I was just really overwhelmed with gratitude that we've been doing it this long and that we have this kind of impact. That Mm -hmm. this this young person who's now not a seventeen year old, but you know, an adult and a professional that wants to be part of the organization and is willing to help us recruit other young people because of the impact that it still has on him to this day. That's so awesome. That must yeah. make feel so good. It does. It does. And, you know, I have had other companies and people talk to me over the years and say, gosh, you know, we'd like to do something like this. We're waiting until we get a little bigger. We have some more money. And my message to people is don't wait. You can start very, very small like we did, you know, we just started in a fifth grade classroom and we're still, you know, just a 20 person company, but we just started our sixth school nutrition program, paying for school lunches in the Philippines this week. And that's a lot. So we, we are literally funding school lunches for severely malnourished children in the Philippines. It's our fourth school and fourth program in the Philippines that we've started and two others in Tanzania. We've funded well over a million lunches since we've started this really sustainably. This is our first real program with a donor. And we started it with a kindergarten class in the Philippines where 36 of the children are severely malnourished. And all of this is under the umbrella of the Chocolate University Foundation. And so you start small and you do what you can. And it's not like we silo this, which is another message I have for companies. Don't silo the good works that you do into your CSR department. I mean. Mm-hmm. God bless CSR, but CSR was all started by who? Lawyers, because it was all at first in the 60s, it was people who were calculating risk and now it's turned into CSR. And so I say, hey, diffuse it through your whole company. It's messy, it's hard to manage, but it's more meaningful for people in, in the company. If they want to become involved, you're not forcing it on them. And it maybe they don't, maybe they just connect the work that they do during the day as, hey, it's pretty cool. that our company is doing this little thing over here in the Philippines or in Tanzania or wherever. And so you can start small and really becomes part of who you are as a company, as a sort of corporate soul, if you will. I love this um, Khalil Gibran notion that he said, don't bake a bread with indifference. If you do, you bake a bitter bread that feeds but half man's hunger. And so what we do and how we behave in our companies is inseparable from who we are. And no matter how, no matter our size, and even if we're just a one-person show, we just can't separate it. And so that's what I love about the work that we're doing with Chocolate University. And I will say, if we scale the company, like you were talking about before, then there's no way that I will have a plan in place about scaling the company without also scaling the work that we're doing in Chocolate University to be part of this new face of capitalism that's happening, whether we like it or not. And as you mentioned earlier, it's largely driven by young people who demand it, who expect it, and it's happening. We might as well get on board 
you were the OGs, like you were on board before there was a board to get on, which is so cool. Like, it's amazing. It's in your DNA. It's not something you're doing because you feel that now the world is demanding it. You were doing it because it was important to you, as you said, it's part of who you are. And I think that's incredible. I mean, I'm so impressed by all the work that you've done and all the people that you've affected. I mean, that one kid is who's now an adult is just a one example of, I'm sure, many, many people whose lives that you've really changed, including the ones in the communities where there there just isn't enough food. Like just yes. that alone is yeah, so yeah. fantastic. So I'm yeah. really, that's amazing. We've had 9,000 young people graduate from our program in Tanzania around the village called Empowered Girls and Enlightened Boys. We started that work in 2010. We have one person who works for us who's Tanzanian who lives in that village where we buy these cocoa beans. Everything to do from childhood pregnancy to treating women as human beings and not property. Mm-hmm. And the effect that we've had on those kids is just, I mean, and again, you know, I keep going back to this, but we're a 20 person company and we've had 9,000 kids graduate from that program. That's phenomenal. And we remain profitable. And also the question phenomenal. should be like, well, would you be more profitable if you focused more time on selling chocolate bars than feeding kids in the Philippines? I don't know, probably, it but it's not something I don't right. even think about it because, yep. and I try to express that to people who teach in business schools is that maybe if you do this work and you do it like this, you might not be as rich when it's all said and done, but what you gain in just the warmth of your soul mm-hmm. and your own personal transformation as a human being is priceless. Totally. Really. Totally. Yeah. You may not be as rich with money. You'll be rich right. with other things that matter. Right. 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 Amazing. Right. What else do you want people to know about you guys? Is there anything else you want people to know? And then I'm going to ask you for, for some advice. Cause you went through, you went about this in a very untraditional way. Mostly people figure out needs and what they want it, what they're, but you went through it in a, in a really interesting way. So I want you to, to think about like, what would you tell someone? Would you, would you advise them to do what you did? Would you advise them to take a different path? But before that, is there anything else you want to say about, about the business and the brand? No, we've really covered a lot. I think we've covered yeah. a lot of ground, which I yeah. am thankful for. Yeah, yeah, I do too. But really good ground also and, mm-hmm. and interesting. I love hearing you say, do it from day one. Like, don't wait to do good things for other people until you are where you want to be. Because where are we ever? Does that ever happen anyway? Right. Right. Do we ever get there? So That's I right. love that you started with it because it was just always a part of who you were and it never, never won't be now. And I, I think that's really good advice, but is there anything else like based on your journey or some of the challenges that you guys have faced as a brand that you would share? The thing I think that's important is if you're starting a business, I really, it doesn't matter what it is. I think it's important to really try to spend some, some valuable time reflecting on your limitations. And I think it's very important, even when thinking about a business plan and putting, whether the business plan is for yourself and maybe you're not going to go borrow money or get an investor, but you should still have a business plan. And when you're thinking about that, I think it's really, really important to reflect on your limitations. And if you can't figure out what they are, then I encourage people to speak with trusted friends who are willing to tell them the truth about what they think their limitations might be. And then once there's some measure of of idea of what those limitations are, to start filling in those gaps. So an example that I think is concrete and that people should do, and people should do it now, given the economy that we're in, is 
put together a really small advisory board. There are, I promise you, there are people who want to help you. And if you're maybe new in business or you're just starting out, or maybe you started during the pandemic and then everything happened with inflation and in recession, and you're like, what am I doing? And you're beginning to drown. I promise you there are people that want to help you. And what I advise people is to just take somebody that's maybe sort of a veteran in the business that's been in it for a long time. Take somebody that's maybe been in five years and just have about three to five people and let them give you advice. Let them help you pay them with product or just gratitude. And I think that goes a long, long way. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't think there's any replacement for having a full and complete understanding of where you are with cash flow every week. Every week. Yeah. Just I know. agree with you on that. Yeah. What are what are the accounts payable? What's the accounts receivable? What cash am I going to have? What cash do I have beginning and what cash do I have ending in the period? And that's it. So many businesses see themselves growing, but they end up falling off a cliff because they haven't managed cash flow and they can't yeah. manage their growth yeah. or lack thereof. And so that's the best advice that I can give. And as we've also said, I think it's important, even in the midst of trying times and challenging times to roll up your sleeves and ask the question, who needs me? And if you're a really small business, maybe you just have one partner or two people, you you together say, who needs us? Mm-hmm. Is it the, is it the little business across the street? Is it someone in our supply chain? Is it our families? What can we do to serve the people who need us in the world that we're operating in right now? Yeah. And that's very important, I think. It's really important. Such good questions. When you were starting the business, did you find that it was easy to get people to give you advice and sit and chat with you? I did. Yeah. I did. I found it easy. I find it easy now. I think people are just, there's something about people who behave as if they know it all and they don't need anything from anybody and they view another opinion with arrogance. And I remember as a lawyer one time in a closing argument, I I stole this from a business book, but a, a business book said that there are two things that will kill a company and it's arrogance and ignorance. And I remember using that in a closing argument in a case that those are two things that will destroy the state's case. And it's true. And it's true in business as I originally read it. And so this idea of having a measure of humility approaching someone in business, maybe it's a completely different industry. People are open to that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you say, gosh, this is a real conundrum that we have here and I don't know which way to go. And I I'd really just really, really appreciate your your wisdom on this. People find it really hard to turn that down. They do. I mean, who wouldn't want to give wisdom, right? right. <laughs> it feeds all right. right into the, you're awesome. Let me ask you a question because yeah. I need your help. That that makes you so excited as a human. Yeah. I mean, I just yeah. got finished this year reading 2000 pages, two books on LBJ by Robert Caro. He won the Pulitzer Prize on one of them. And LBJ used to call people on the phone all the time. And he was famous, famous for saying to fill in the blank politician, you know, I really need your wisdom. I really need your, and they did. Of course. You know, and it's just hard to turn. Now, if somebody emails you and they say, I know you don't know me, but will you be my mentor? Or no, I'm not, I don't have time to be your mentor right now. I mean, I don't know you and I'm I'm so busy mentoring kids in the chocolate university program. I don't have time. But if someone emails me and they're like, oh man, I have this problem. This is the problem. 
is there any way you could hop on the phone with me for, yeah, for yeah. 45 minutes? I'm, I'm going to do it. Of course. Of, of course. course. You would too. We all do that. We all do. We all do. And I think it's it's really good advice. What do you do right now when you need, like you're still growing and you still have, you know, you could probably use advice once in a while. What do you do yeah, now? I do. I do exactly what I just Same said. Thing? Yep. Except what I've done, what, what's happened with me now is, you know, in the last 15 or 16 years, I've developed relationships with people over the years. And let's pick one. Ari Weinzweig, who co-founded Zingerman's Deli, is a great friend of mine, good customer, but he's also a mentor. Mm-hmm. So if there's something that I'm really struggling with, and sometimes it might not even be business, maybe it's something personal, yeah. I'll call him and he'll talk to me and he'll take time to say, oh, well, you know, this is how I'm thinking about this. Or it might be the people at Intelligentsia Coffee who helped me in the very beginning develop a direct trade program for cocoa because they did it in the mid nineties for coffee. Amazing. Jeff Watts at Intelligent, and they're good customers. And so I may contact the CEO at Intelligentsia and say, well, what about this? And then that's what I do now. I, I'm not, I'm not, it's not beyond me to research somebody on LinkedIn that I think m- m- might be able to help me with a really, really, really specific question that I have. But for the most part, it's, 10 or 15 people that I've developed relationships with over the years that I, that I feel comfortable calling. And sometimes they'll call me, which I'm honored by. And that's something I feel like also that's really important in business is developing relationships with people inside and outside your industry that you can ring up and be very open and honest with your inability to solve a problem. Yeah. I think you're right about that. I think people really generally do want to help Intelligentsia is one of my favorite brands. That's so nice that you brought that up. That's amazing. Yep. That you guys work with them. That's so cool. Yep. All their mochas and hot cocos use our chocolate. Uh, incredible. See things yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even think I've tried your chocolate, but I have. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You have. Yes, you have. <laughs> that's amazing. That's so yeah. cool. Anything else before we wrap up? I, I so appreciate all of your time. This is so fantastic. No, not not that I can think of. This is we've really covered a lot of ground and inspiring stuff too. So thank yeah. you so much because I think that sometimes people need to be inspired and also just know like you don't have to have it all figured out. Like you didn't know. No. You you just I still don't. I still don't know. Ah, me neither. Me neither. Me neither. None of us do. That's <laughs> right. the illusion we're living. Like, I think that's an yes. illusion. When you think you have it figured out. That's when you're really in trouble, right? Indeed. Isn't that yes. the truth? Oh, man. Uh, yes. So true. So true. Well, thank you so much for thank this you. time. I really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday. Thank you.